I feel like my mission on life is to inspire other gardeners and let them know that it's okay to make mistakes. In fact, it's good to make mistakes. And the, and the biggest mistake you can make is not getting started, but you learn from those experiences. And so that's what I'm here to do is, is to bring on as many new gardeners, bring on a new army of gardeners and, and, and help them feel like they can do it, empower them to, to learn and just to um, get better every year. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Uh, today, I'm really, really pleased to be joined by Joe. We had a great interview. Um, now, Joe is on TV in the US, um, and he's been producing shows for TV to do with gardening for a very, very long time. So really, really lucky to have him on. And we talk about all things gardening, his passions about how he got into gardening, and really his dedication to helping people get into gardening. Um, we had a really, really great conversation. Now, I hope uh, with the weather outside, it's pretty hot today, but it's been very, very hot over the bank holiday. I hope everyone had a really, really good bank holiday and didn't struggle too much water in their plants. We went through uh, around about three water tanks full of water um, just to water the nursery. Um, really nice to have the weather. Um, but it's also now it's cooled down really nice not to have to water every minute of the day hope everyone's not struggling with that Um, but yeah without further ado let's start the podcast hi you're listening to plants and me the podcast that is all about plants gardening and the people who are passionate about them with your host alan lodge welcome to the podcast joe Welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thank you very much. It's really kind of you. Now, you're joining me from uh, what part of the States? Atlanta, Georgia, the southeast. Brilliant. Um, and the weather there, my geography is not great. Oh, it's just fantastic. Now, we're pretty hot and humid in the summertime, so our average summer days will be in the low 90s. Uh, humidity will be up there in the 80s to 90 wow. percent. But uh, and I'm speaking Fahrenheit, of course, for the temperature. But um, it that's hot. That's very hot. But it's not unbearable. And if you're used to it, like I am, I've grown up in this kind of climate. Um, it's all you know. Yeah, excellent. And I imagine it it allows you to grow some really exotic stuff. But before we move on to things like that, um, tell us a little bit about you and your life in gardening. Well, I've been gardening for over forty years. I I discovered gardening as a child following my dad around in his yard when he did his yard work and i didn't have a family of gardeners per se they were just uh what i call weekend warriors the people that mow the grass and trim the bushes and don't really have an eye towards gardening but they just like like a nice looking yard so i would follow them around to pass the time and this and just and discovered how much i enjoyed uh just being outside and playing in the soil and having a good time there and and um, I broke a branch off of a plant, my, one of my dad's plants, accidentally, and I didn't want to get in trouble, so I stuck the broken branch into the soil and covered it up and came back by that plant about 10 weeks later and discovered that it had taken root and started sprouting new leaves. And <laughs> I was amazed by that. I could not believe what I was seeing right before my <laughs> eyes. And that literally was the moment that I felt like um, I became, what I say, hooked on horticulture. So... Here we are, uh, you know, all this time later, and and I've been gardening probably nearly every day since. And and to me, gardening is better today than it was yesterday, and it's going to be more exciting tomorrow than it is today. So I have not burned out, and I just I love it so much. Excellent. And what does your your gardening take take shape as? Um, you're on YouTube, or 
Yeah, well, I have, you know, in the States, I have a national television show that I created and host, and actually it's my third television show that I've been the host of. Um, I, I, uh, I was on a big network, uh, sister station to HGTV here in the States for three years, teaching people how to grow food in a backyard raised bed vegetable garden. And that was a very successful show. And when that retired after three years, I was selected to host another national show on public television. And I did that for three years, but I felt like I really wanted to do my own show because nobody was doing the type of show that I wanted to do, which was to teach people how to garden, uh, a lot of it with a focus on organic gardening, because I felt like uh, there wasn't really enough people out there showing the way to have a beautiful, healthy garden without the use of heavy chemicals and synthetic chemicals. So I wanted people to lighten their environmental footprint. I wanted to inspire them to know that they could grow food or grow native plants and and um, help the environment. So I created this television series that's now in its 10th season this year. We're about to wrap it up in another two weeks. Um, and that's been my life uh, for these 10 years, along with a, a, a podcast that I do every week. And um, we do YouTube videos, and we have an online cor- online courses through my online gardening academy. So I've been full time. I've been a full time gardening communicator through all forms of media since about uh, 2005 or so. Long time now. Yeah, yeah long time. Yeah. And is it you say garden gardening communicator? Mm-hmm. Is it that what attracts you? Is is it about for you getting people inspired and out into the garden? It is. It's teaching people. I My mother was a school teacher, a high school teacher, and so I feel like I inherited her teaching genes. And I'm so such an advocate and such a fan of gardening and environmental stewardship that I have a kind of a preacher uh, mentality, too. So I have, I'm very enthusiastic, and I love connecting with individuals. You know, television is a great medium to get the word out to the masses. But the thing about television that it's lacking is that interactivity that you get with the individual and the, res- the response from people because television is just kind of a one-way direction where I'm getting the word out, but there's no feedback directly. I mean, I get emails and things like that through social media, but I really enjoy the live interaction or the real-time interaction um, where I know that I'm directly helping people. And and it gets, you know, it gets very challenging when you're reaching a lot of people um, kind of one-on-one but that's what I love to do. So um, I, th- I feel like my mission on life is to inspire other gardeners and let them know that it's okay to make mistakes. In fact, it's good to make mistakes. And the, and the biggest mistake you can make is not getting started, but you learn from those experiences. And so that's what I'm here to do is, is to bring on as many new gardeners, bring on a new army of gardeners and, and, and help them feel like they can do it, empower them to, to learn and just to um, get better every year. Hmm. Excellent. And uh, in general, are you targeting your your message towards first-time gardeners or experienced gardeners? Where where do you target? Well, my heart is for the first-time gardener. You know, it's the person that really has been kind of afraid to try because they didn't want to mess up or they didn't know where to begin. Uh, and and I, I want those people to feel like they can do it, which is why I, I try to encourage them not to take on more than they can you know, don't take a bigger bite than you can chew the first time out. Just, you know, you can always expand, but all I want people to do is give it a try. And then I'm sort of there to guide them along the way. But I have also learned that because I've been gardening for so long and I've been doing it professionally, you know, for years on television and everywhere else, that there's a large 
contingency of people that have been gardening a very long time as well that are horticulturalists or people that are teaching teaching it in college that are following our videos and our YouTubes because we hear from them every day as well. So much to my pleasure, my message is not only reaching and inspiring the new gardeners, but it's reminding the experienced gardeners maybe things that they forgot or teaching them in a way that helps them finally make the connection to those things that they kind of understood, but not, not really. And maybe just because they heard it from my, from me a slightly different way, they get it now. And we hear that. The reason I, I say that is because I know that, because they tell me that through the feedback that we get from our online courses and through, you know, the various social media channels that we have. Yeah, excellent. And I think I think you're exactly right. You can hear almost exactly the same message from one person, but just worded very, very slightly different. And all of a sudden it clicks. I think it's happened to all of us. It doesn't have to be gardening. It can be anything that that sort of thing has, has always happened. So you're obviously uh, you're teaching hundreds, thousands of people on a on a regular basis, in effect. Yes. Um, so Let's take a, a problem we have in the UK. Gardens getting smaller. Uh-huh. Um, people uh, now. I'm I'm 38, um, and in the UK, probably between 30 and 40 is when people really start being interested in the main. Obviously, that's that's not everybody. Um, they get their first flat or first first apartment, um, and they've got a few pots outside. Where should they start? They should. Um read the plant tag <laughs> they should look at their location to find out if that plant is suitable for that environment that they've got is it a sunny spot is it in shade is it partly cloudy you know what i try to tell people to do is take that plant and put it into the best environment that you can so even if you don't have you know um, a large garden maybe it's just a raised bed or a, a mounded plot or maybe it's a container just focus on giving it good soil and the best growing environment that it, you can give it because those plants genetically they're destined to grow and they want to thrive you know they want to survive they want to produce seeds and reproduce and so they're determined to do that and and more often than not they will in spite of our best best efforts to screw it up sometimes i tell people we we love our plants to death you know so we tend to care for them too much like overwatering or or coddling them too much but i do tell people educate yourself about the plant learn what the right environment for that plant is try to give that plant the best environment and for me that's the right environmental conditions combined with the best soil you know if you can give plants great soil they should do okay on their own other than that you know and then i love people to pay attention to their plants and watch the development, watch the growth, pay attention to the changes, the subtle changes from day to day. It's not as though you have to be out there every day, but if you can, why wouldn't you? Because it's such a calming, enjoyable experience to sort of hang out with your plants, right? But 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 that is also the opportunity to notice those small differences that may happen from one day to the next. And sometimes it's those changes that's an indication that you might have a problem or something that needs your attention. Maybe it's a uh, the start of a small pest pest problem where you can maybe handpick the eggs off the leaves or some way to to break the cycle of that pest infest pest or disease infestation. Um, but you know you don't always know what you're looking at or, or if it's a problem at all. But thank God for the internet these days and for you know sources like you uh, that you know people can go to that have been around the block more than once and they they can help, you know, and that's the beautiful thing about gardeners. We're such a community of passionate, caring people, and we 
we tend to be a family. You know, it's you. I know you know this, Alan. But you know, when you have these people that you've never met before come to you, and within a minute, you know, you've got this common bond, and you're like old friends talking amongst each other about you know how to how to get that plant to grow or the solving a problem, and you're in it together. And it's just I love that about gardening. Um, but it's, it's getting started. That's the main thing. And the first thing, and even if you mess up, you know, you ask me what would be my recommendation, even if, even if somebody messed up, it's okay. Because, you know, if, if gardening were perfect, it wouldn't be exciting to me, at least, you know, I love the challenges and the mysteries of it. And I always feel like I'm reminded, I should say that I'm never in full control. I feel like mother nature always has that upper hand. But I'm fascinated by how things grow and when things go wrong, why did they go wrong? You know, there's a reason for that. And you become a better, stronger and more confident gardener when you can try to put your detective hat on to understand why that went wrong. And then when you find the answer to that, how much more confident are you to take on the next step and to feel bolder and better about your experience? So getting started and providing the best growing environment from the start is um, probably the two most important things you can do. And it's okay to make mistakes. Yeah, definitely. Do you think people try to do too much? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, especially as a new gardener, we're so ambitious. I'm a, I'm, you know, I'm a very experienced gardener and I'm so ambitious. <laughs> Every year I, I, I tell myself in the middle of the growing season when it's hot and humid and the diseases and the pests have come in, I tell myself right then, I say, okay, now next year at this time, don't be so aggressive. Give yourself permission to not plant 43 tomato plants or something like that. <laughs> but I do, you know, and, and it's not only that, did I, did I do that? I do more. And I don't know what it is about me that I can't turn it off. I want to, I want to do bigger and better all the time, but we do as new gardeners, especially because we don't know what we're getting into. Um, we don't understand that that little flat of seed seedlings is going to grow up and become really big and they're going to fill out the space and then they're going to take a lot of sunlight and they're going to cut down on air circulation when they come too close together. And, you know, I don't know what your disease pressures are there, Alan, but here around the Southeast and in the United States, when it's hot and it's humid, especially with tomato plants, they're very susceptible to diseases, but we become overambitious and we, we want, you know, all of this stuff all at once. And I always tell people, listen, take it easy. Uh, you can always expand, but I don't want you to be overwhelmed. I don't want you to have so much going on that you can't keep up with it. And that's likely to happen for the reasons we already talked about, you know, plants want to grow, but, um, I don't want people to be discouraged. And when they plant too ambitiously and you have some of those challenges that come on and they likely will, I want people to feel like they can they can figure it out and do better next time, but I don't want them to feel like it's so overwhelming they don't want to take it on next year. That's the one thing I never want to have happen. Hmm. Uh, yeah, and that, that is definitely uh, a massive danger when people get into gardening to begin with. And actually, something I always say on the podcast is we've, we've got a professional nursery. We've been growing now, um, obviously not myself, but my family for over 70 years. And there isn't a, a year that goes past that we don't make mistakes. Right. So if you've never, never gardened before in your life, you will make mistakes. It's a guarantee. Yes. And you will 40 years in, too. And I... I tell people all the time, you know, they, they, you know, they look, the people, people look at, look to me as the expert, right? And, and they, I have to remind them that, listen, I love making mistakes because I always want to push the limits. I always want to understand when something doesn't work, why it doesn't work, but I'm willing to give it a try so that I can learn because I'm always, I'm all about learning. And I will tell you this, and I, I'm sure you would agree with this, you know, no matter how much 
you know about gardening, no matter how long you know, how long you've been gardening, there's always more to learn. You can never learn it all. And I think it's the time that you stop making mistakes or you stop challenging yourself that it, you know, gardening doesn't become, stay as fun anymore. So I, I love the challenges and I embrace the mistakes because I always want to learn. Excellent. And uh, the climate uh, where you are is, is very different to where we are. Yes. Um, certainly from a humidity point of view. Yeah. Um, we very, very rarely get up to the temperatures you're talking about getting regularly. But when people are starting out uh, in your area, have you got a few sort of must-have plants, ones that you think are really, really good for beginners? Well, I do, um, you know, and this really pertains to to wherever you live in the country or the world, really. And it depends on whether they want to grow um, food crops or they want to grow ornamental crops or ornamental plants. And, it, and if it's something to beautify your landscape, um, I'm a big fan of using native plants, basically those plants that have evolved over time and they've and and insects and birds have co-evolved with them and they're dependent on those plants so that you have that healthy biodiversity growing all around you. And here in the U.S., and I'm sure it's that way where you are and beyond, um, with urban sprawl and development, we're losing the habitats that these plants and these and this wildlife has depended upon for survival. And the more development encroaches on those things and the more we lose those plants, the more important it is for gardeners to do our part to replace some of those things that we're losing. So that's why I'm a big proponent of using native plants. And around here, people will say, well, native plants aren't as pretty as some of those, you know, annuals and those perennials that we, we like. And it's not that you just have to have native plants. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate of saying, let's have some of both. But while you're planting your landscape, look for those plants that not only satisfy your need for aesthetics, but they also provide ecological value for the environment and for the wildlife around it. You can have a plant that looks great and provides benefit to the environment as well. So that's my thing as far as landscape plants. And that's how my, I live on five acres. I have a small farm and I I have a heavily planted out landscape beds with those type of plants. Um, so native plants are also the ones that are easier to survive once they're established because they've grown up in that area and they, they're used to that climate. And so beginning gardeners, uh, you know, if they're trying to set up their, their home yard and their landscape, I would recommend that they look for native plants that have the aesthetic value that they're looking for too. And then for the edibles, I think leafy crops, I think lettuces and spinach and chard and, uh, you know, kale and all the what we call cool season crops here because uh, they they like a cooler climate than the summer provides. But but those are so low maintenance because they're not necessarily producing fruit, but they're producing foliage that you can eat, you know, and so that's less pressure on the plant to produce that. It's easier on the grower to experience that success. And so I, I tell people, you know, if you want to grow tomatoes in the summertime, just be ready for a very challenging. Tomatoes are he, down here or in, in the States, at least in the southeastern United States, tomatoes are probably the hardest thing that you can grow with success to get imagine, it through yeah. the season. Yes, without the pest and disease pressures. And even so, you know, you hope to have a tomato at the end of the day. And usually you will, but not without a lot of work. So if they want to do that, and most of them do, because the taste of a vine-ripe tomato is amazing, uh, but 
if they really want to take on gardening and dip their toe into the water without diving into the deep end, then I'd strongly recommend something that's fast growing and easy and pest fairly pest free and that would be your lettuces and your leafy crops you know mm. so that's what i would recommend yeah definitely and i think actually there's a lot to be said for especially when you start out as well or maybe you're gardening with children there's a lot to be said for something that's a bit quicker uh, yes um because i we do there's no doubt about it we live in a world that expects results much much quicker um and sometimes a, a crop that's going to take six months um unfortunately especially children and that's a bit more acceptable because children have never been patient um, <laughs> <laughs> um but especially uh something that you can see sprout something that you can see results from quickly um i think goes a long way and is your recommendation for that? Oftentimes we recommend radishes, for example. Do, do you yep. do that? Radishes yeah. are very good. Um, we we tend to have quite a few different types of, um, I'm trying to think what it, um, cilantro. Um, so oh, yeah. yeah, coriander um, yeah. works really well here. And we're, we're a herb uh -huh. grower as well. So that's one of the reasons oh. we tend to, to move towards that. Um, things like rocket as well. I don't know whether you, it's called rocket. Arugula? uh yeah i think it could be yeah, yeah. uh-huh yeah and those herbs you know i'm glad you mentioned that because that's another one i think those are almost foolproof here they're so easy to grow and a little bit goes a long way in the kitchen but um that is that's a plant that that may be the lowest maintenance of ones of all for for around here and so i'm glad you mentioned that i overlooked that but that's an important one as a recommendation yeah, definitely. Um, and you've mentioned a few times uh, to do with uh, the environment. You mentioned organic growing yeah. and, and chemicals and things like that. Have you seen a change in the climate at all? I have. Uh, it's interesting. You know, the United States is 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 behind in embracing um, less chemical usage. You know, I think I think. Um, Speaking of being impatient, you know, everyone here seems to want to have that quick fix and they just want to know what they can spray on a plant to kill the pest or solve the disease problem. Because, you know, for those that have had parents that garden, that's kind of what their parents always did here. You know, they just use that that powder, that dust or that sprayer with that chemical. And thank goodness, you know, over the last I'd say the last 10 years and, and, and you know, of course, I've been communicating with the public much longer than that, but I have noticed uh, a trend towards people looking for more environmentally responsible ways to deal with that issue. And I especially notice it in the younger generations, you know, those young homeowners or those people that are starting the garden for the first time. What's really um, pleasing to me is that they're not even considering a chemical man-made or synthetic option uh, to solve their pest or disease problems, they are automatically opting for something that is, um, you know, more environmentally responsible. So they're sort of just by default because it's the way they want to garden. They're organic to begin with. And I'll tell you one other interesting thing that I've noticed recently, and that is even the largest chemical companies here, the garden chemical companies like the Scott's miracle Grow company that's, you know, all over the world, but they're huge here in the States. You know, they, they make a lot of synthetic chemicals to fertilize your garden and to deal with the pest and disease issues. But they just finally came out with an organic version of miracle Grow, which is kind of what everybody used to go for, um, because they recognize that th the generation coming up that's gardening they don't want a synthetic version of miracle Grow. They want to use organic products. And 
that was a big thing, I think, for Miracle Grow to finally decide to do that, and I'm and I'm glad they did, and I'm, and I'm I, I applaud them for that to give another option. But uh, I hope the trend continues, and I think it will. I I, I feel confident that it will, and uh, the more people in the gardening communicator role like me that show show consumers that they can have great results, they can have a healthy, attractive garden without the use of chemicals, I think is inspiring. And and to be able to walk your talk like I do, uh, you know, I, I put my garden on public display all the time through television and through the videos on Instagram and so forth. Um, I just put it out there and I make it clear that I've never put a chemical into my garden that's synthetic or man-made. And I rarely even use organic things, but it's other things that you can do, like right plant, right place, and, and, and creating the best soil environment that you can, and making lots of compost, and using lots of compost, and then staying active in your garden, getting out there and picking off the diseased problems as you see them, or tapping the be Japanese beetles into a cup of soapy water as you see them, and get, staying ahead of the problem. That goes a long way. And, and, you know, it's one thing to hear somebody say that, but when somebody says it and they can show you the results, as I often always do, um, that's where you can really prove that your words have teeth. You know, you're, you, can, you can back it up with what you're showing, and it's not just lip service, it's actual results. Mm, mm, definitely. Yeah. And without... Um, what's the way of putting it? We've, yeah, without wanting to put you on the spot too much... Um, have you then come across crops that, uh, because you're growing like that, that you found harder to grow, that you've had to find new ways around it, or, or just don't suit your climate? Well, you know, I keep talking about tomatoes, and tomatoes is that one, that one crop that is so prone to diseases. And, you know, from an organic control standpoint, it's hard to control disease, period, whether you're using a synthetic man-made product or not. Once that disease is in the plant, it's in the plant, and there isn't a, there isn't a, a control made yet to date that can cure a disease once it's in the plant. But, you know, some synthetic uh, fungicides, for example, may be a little more effective at preventing its spread. But when you're gardening organically, all you can really try to do is be proactive and remove any signs of disease to prevent future spores from spreading, for example, and, and cutting that out. And then maybe using like a copper, a copper spray that uh, helps slow the spread as well. But still, and I'll tell, I'll say this, you know, putting me on the spot, it's okay because of those 43 tomato plants that I grew this year, here we are just into August, most of them are dying. Uh, and it's not because I haven't been out there trying to keep up with it, but the fact is those diseases are so prolific and the environment is so conducive to the spread of those diseases that you can only do so much. And it's the fact of life with gardening. You know, as much as you want to think you're in control, you're not. You just have to work with Mother Nature and do the best that you can while doing as le little harm as possible to the environment. At least that's my opinion. So... What I look to do is get as much as I can out of those plants for the um, longest amount of time that I can, but there becomes a point where I can only do so much and, and, it, and it's going to get away from me or I'm going to lose the battle. But I'm mature enough in my gardening wisdom and experience to know that, you know what, that's okay. I had a bumper crop of tomatoes more than I could ever eat or share over the you know six weeks that I had had them, that it's okay that now that we're still in summer, but it's getting late in summer, those plants are tired and they're, they've been overtaken. And 
I can be okay with that. You know, I don't have to feel like I failed or that I'm never going to grow tomatoes again. I just have to accept that that's how how it is here. And it and for me, it's tomatoes in the southeastern United States. But for other people and where you are, it's some other type of crop. And and um, I think that's a lot. That's that's a good sign of maturity for gardeners to understand that you you will never be able to fully control your garden or what happens in it. But you know, learning to work with what's growing and how it's growing and the challenges that come up, that's that's a mature gardener. Just learning how to garden in harmony with Mother Nature and give her give her a run for her money, but don't try to <laughs> don't try to win because I don't think that's really possible. No, right. no, I definitely agree with that. And you mentioned different climates there, um, and it suddenly occurred to me if you you're doing uh, TV shows for the whole of um, United States, um, you've got a huge amount of different climates and conditions there. How does that work? You know, um, it's interesting. Gardeners grow up in a certain environment, and that's what they become. That's what they get used to. Like they might live in the northern United States, where it's cool summers and you know they don't garden in the winter because it's too cold but then they'll move to the southern united states maybe the desert southwest where the whole gardening season shifts from summer to really what was their winter in other words it's not it's so hot in the desert southwest in the summer you can't grow tomatoes and other plants because it's too hot but they have to shift their mindset to realize oh they they're going to start gardening now in october which for most people is when they stop gardening for at least their summer crops, it's over by then. But um, it's it's such a diverse range of growing environments here from super hot and dry, where you learn to work with plants that are Mediterranean or adapted to those conditions and understand that, you know, you're not going to be very successful trying to grow plants that, you know, prefer cooler climates like lilacs or something like that. It's just not going to work. So I think getting to know the area that you live and the climate and the plants that prefer that growing region and not trying to take on, you know, putting a, putting a square peg in a round hole, you know, don't try to put that plant into that environment. that's not going to be happy with there. There's a reason why you don't see it growing naturally in that area is because the climate isn't conducive to that. But that's where gardeners, I think, get very frustrated is they, they try to grow things that aren't meant to grow there you know yeah you can try it but you may not probably won't be successful and there's enough great plants to grow all over the united states there's such a diverse plant palette all over the states that you can be very happy growing what's happy there growing without trying to force something to grow there that really doesn't want to grow there but my experience traveling the country to work with these gardeners all over has opened my eyes to the diversity of the of the climate and the challenges that we have but you know it's it's really only challenging if you're trying to grow those plants that don't want to grow in that area Hmm. yeah and uh, we even find that in the uk and we're talking um uh, i don't know exactly let's say 800 miles from from top to bottom um so we're talking a very very small amount of space uh, compared to um, the states Um, so i can imagine we even find because we ship plants out um, how we have to be cautious about the stuff that we send to Scotland. Um, uh, and it is, like I say, only five, 600 miles away. Um, it's amazing how much it can change in sh- such a short distance. Wow. Yeah, I bet yeah, it is. Definitely. 
Yeah. So uh, when you first started getting into gardening and uh, moving into a few questions we always ask people, um, from an inspiration point of view, um, inspirational point of view, sorry, you you obviously kind of stumbled across gardening um, all on your own by sticking something in the ground. Um, but was there a particular person that inspired you or a book that you remember? You know, I didn't have a family of gardeners to teach me gardening. I um, I would give credit to an uncle. I, I did, I was, you know, just a young boy and on a Saturday when I had nothing to do and he was a, within a bike ride's distance of his house and he was older, he needed, you know, an, some help. He paid me, you know, I don't know, what was it back then, a small amount of money per day to help him in his yard. But one of the things uh, that he he grew were... Uh, they're called staghorn ferns, and I don't know that you would have them there, but they're just a type of fern that, that grows in a hanging, that easily can grow in a hanging basket, and you can propagate it incredibly easy. So he sent me home with some of these, they're called pups. It's the part you cut away from the parent fern that you propagate. And so he, he taught me how to grow them on a Saturday, and I took them home, and I did what he taught me to do, and they quickly took root and they became huge in a very short period of time and um, if I had to if I had to credit one person in my life for my um, amazement with gardening and especially plant propagation it would be my uncle um, but that was my thing is propagation that's you know that's how I came into gardening was sticking that what I thought was a broken branch that probably would die just sticking it in the ground to cover my tracks and then finding out that it took root and started to sprout new leaves that was a form of propagation and that amazed me and so my early life in gardening was propagating anything I could it was taking cuttings and just seeing what happened and I didn't have anybody to teach me how to do it and certainly the internet wasn't around and you know I was only eight years old so I probably wasn't looking at many reference books at that point, but I was trying, I was experimenting, and I was observing the cause and effect of what I did, and thankfully I had enough success that I, I learned from everything that happened, and you know that's why I say I'd never look back. I, I, I'm guarding every day and loving it more every day, so yeah. Yeah, and I bet you'd echo exactly what I say, that even though you've you've propagated thousands and thousands of plants, mm -hmm. still to this day, it's still amazing. Oh, I go out every day and look at my cuttings, and, and I just I stare at my seeds coming up out of the seed trays. Every, as many years as I've been doing this, I, I walk past my seed trays because they're right outside my office, and I can't help myself from stopping and staring at the trays of just soil because the seeds have only been there two days you know and i'm wondering if they're mm. going to come up that day <laughs> and i'm just i'll spend many minutes looking to see if i see the first little clearance of soil you know from the seedling coming up anyway you get the point um it is it is i never ever ever will get tired of watching plants grow from a seed or a cutting or anything else yeah mm. Brilliant. Um, and actually, I think even uh, pretty much every gardener is exactly the same, uh -huh. really. Someone someone who's chosen to do it um, for a living. Um, it's one of those jobs. There's very few people in here who've come sort of mega rich from it. It's really a, a career of passion. Yeah. It's a labor of love, for sure. Mm. Yes, it is. Yeah.
So you're walking around your garden. Um, sounds like you've got a nice bit of space, nice lot of plants there. Is there a particular a bit of equipment or or tool you always have with you? Yes, I do. I have. Um, I put my pruning. I have a pruning holster or sheath, depending on how you want to call it. That I I have by my door, heading out to my garden, and I have several of these because depending on which door I go out, I want to have it within <laughs> close reach. But I I've settled on my pair of bypass pruners and what's called um, a soil knife. It's like a hoary hoary knife um, that in my case has a, it's a version of that with a orange kind of a padded hard plastic handle that really fits my hand really well. But um, my holster, my pruning sheath has two slots in it. So it holds my soil knife and my bypass pruners perfectly it's made for holding those two things and so if i am out in my garden with those two things i can i feel empowered to to probably do anything that i need to do as i'm walking along because if you're like me and you you walk past something it's hard to stop if you see something that needs attention you know maybe it's digging out that tap-rooted weed or maybe it's taking a cutting or pruning off a stray branch or you know it could be any number of things so i feel naked without my sheath with my <laughs> soil knife and my bypass pruners and then and then if i could just if i could find a pair of um a holster or a sheath that had one more little pouch they could put snips garden snips so if i want to reach into a a plant a, a herbaceous plant or something and cut out a like in a tomato cut out a sucker or something i don't want to take my bypass pruners because they're larger and the blades are bigger i want that really sharp long pointed pair of precision snips or scissors and those are smaller than bypass pruners so if somebody would listening would make that pouch for me with that one extra little pocket on the outside that i could put my garden snips into i would be in heaven i would have everything i needed <laughs> <laughs> i'm sure there's somewhere out there it's probably a bit better with uh, uh, a bit of needlework or whatever it would take uh, than we would be i i look i look for that pouch all the time <laughs> i found it yeah <laughs> I might have to invent it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you've mentioned it uh, before. I'm from talking to you now. Uh, I know uh, without a doubt uh, this is something that, that has happened to you. But have you got any noticeable failures that you've had uh, from a gardening point of view? Absolutely. You know, um, I shared my, you know, the fact that my tomato plants die uh, by the end of the season. And, you know... A lot of people would call that a failure. I call that an opportunity to figure out, you know, how I can maybe make the plants live longer or not get those diseases. So, yes, I, you know, I have failures. I have, I have, for example, I have a tree, uh, a stewardia that was, you know, probably eight feet tall when I bought it. Um, and so they call it a false camellia. But I, I planted that in the ground, and it's ironic Alan, I actually filmed a video at the time to show people how to properly plant a large shrub or any shrub. So I talked about preparing the hole. I talked about loosening the root ball. I talked about, you know, backfilling with the native soil. I talked about how to water it in. I talked about adding two layers of mulch. And then I talked about how to establish that plant with the proper irrigation after that. And I videoed that. And it was like the the seven steps to the seven steps to how to plant a tree or shrub perfectly. I can't remember the title, but that was the essence of the video. And I did everything that you and I and other experienced gardeners know to do to ensure success of that tree or shrub when you put it in the ground. 
And do you know that it died? <laughs> <laughs> and, and for the life of me, I can't figure out why that happened because everything that I did that I know to do was right. Uh, horticulturally, you know, best practices, mm. but I have a feeling and I, and I have yet to pull it out. I don't have the part heart to pull it out, but it is dead. It's been dead for a while. I have a feeling, do you have voles there? Do you have the little rodent called a vole? We, we do. Yeah. yeah. I have a feeling I had voles get in and, and decimate the root system and basically eat up the roots underground because that's pretty common around here. And you oh. can have a perfectly healthy plant, but if the vole digs its way into the soil and, and eats the, all the roots, it's going to die. And so I'm pretty sure that's what's happened, but I don't know. But um, yeah, that was a failure, but I'm not sure it's anything that I did. Um, in fact, I'm quite sure that it, I didn't do anything to cause it to fail, but the plant failed and um, I just need to know why. So to my point of, you know, these failures that we have, they're okay. And, and your job is to understand why they failed so that you can, uh, prevent that problem from happening again, if it happens to be something that you did that caused it to die. But if it's not, what caused it to die? And if it's the voles, for example, well, that's good to know. I need to keep an eye out for the voles, or how can I control the vole problem here? So there's a learning opportunity for every failure, which again, I call opportunities. And I think that's one of the best things about gardening is that even, even if it's not a success and something goes wrong, you can learn from it and be a better gardener. And that's, that's what we all want to be, you know? So we need, we need those failures and those challenges along the way to get better. I mean, if we didn't have those, how do we improve? We don't, we don't know how to get better if we don't have things that we need to learn how to fix. Yeah, exactly. You'd end up being a gardener who only grows one plant yeah. uh, one time a year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Excellent. So if people wanted to get in touch, they wanted to see see what you're doing, where's the best way that they can do that? I think joegardener.com. And, and I'll spell it because some people, at least in the States, they leave out an E, but it's J-O-E-G-A-R-D-E-N-E-R.com. And that website has links to the podcast. It has links to our videos. It has our blog post. It has information on our online course. Um, it's 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 pretty rich. I mean, we've, we spend a lot of time on that site and we, we post there all the time. And I think that's as far as a single place to go, that would be, a, and then as far as social media, I'm active on Instagram at Joe Gardener and there's a Facebook group, a Joe Gardener Facebook group. So that's kind of it. Um, there's the television show, which, which is available on YouTube. Growing a greener world is the name of the show, growing a greener world. So the YouTube, the link for the YouTube uh, channel would be GGWTV, and that just stands for Growing a Greener World TV. So GGWTV would be the YouTube link. But um, there's the videos of our season nine episodes there that people, I know you have some great gardening shows over there. I'll tell you what, mm. here in the U.S., it's funny because, you know, I'm one of the one of only maybe two national gardening television shows still in production, but so oh, really? so many of my audience always is referring to all the great shows that you have over there. Uh, and I'm almost, I'm almost like wanting to raise my hand. Hey, don't forget about my show. You know, I'm here, <laughs> I've got a show, but, um, they, I mean, we all love the shows that come from over there and, um, you do a great job, but in case anybody over there wants to see what we're doing over here, I have a good show. <laughs> I, I think they do actually. Yeah. Um, and certainly, um, 
we I've noticed recently uh, from a from a cooking show point of view, yeah. um, a lot of US cooking shows coming over here now, oh, yeah. um, and a little bit um, of the other stuff. Maybe I haven't seen a huge amount of gardening shows coming over, but I think that will follow because um, certainly in this country, although we've had gardening shows for a very long time, but the the huge amount of cooking shows was followed by a large amount of, of gardening shows. So hopefully we get your stuff over there. And it's I, I really enjoy seeing gardening done in a very slightly different way, uh-huh. slightly different climate. Um, obviously, it's it's lovely. We, we call them exotic and you call them normal plants. <laughs> right, and vice versa, yes. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so brilliant. Thank you very much for joining me. It's been really, really nice talking to you. Alan, I, I really appreciated the opportunity to be on your show. So thank you for having me it was a pleasure to be on the show excellent and actually um just to double check because obviously people will listen to this the podcast does it go by the same name it's the joe gardener show the, mm-hmm. the joe gardener show so it's on apple Podcasts. but if you google that or, or search for that um it should come up it's it's one of the uh, top gardening podcasts so it should be there excellent yeah. brilliant well thank you very much for joining me hopefully we'll catch up again sometime thank you alan i it was a pleasure i look forward to talking to you again Thanks, Joe. Bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us on the Plants and Me podcast. We'll be back soon. If you can't get enough of all things plant-related, pop over to plants-uk.co.uk. And if you enjoy our podcast, don't forget to subscribe and rate us.